At Galatians 5, verse 16, we see what, he's, what Paul is doing with this book. We've been going through what the text is known as the fruit of the Spirit. He has, he's been working with these churches in the Galatia area. They've been beginning to follow after some, uh, some teaching that would include Jesus Christ in the teaching, but yet it was that Jesus wasn't enough that they still had to follow some Mosaic laws and, and, and ceremonial cleanliness laws and things things like that. And, and Paul was saying, no, this is why Jesus came. He came to fulfill all that, so you don't have to do that anymore. And so he, he's, he's just agonizing in this letter over these people, and he gives this, this admonition here towards the end of the book, and he says, walk in the Spirit, verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And he goes through and he gives all the list of some of the things, some examples of what the works of the flesh would be in verses 19, 20, and 21. But then he says this in verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with his passions and desires. We've been looking through this passage the last several weeks, and we're just taking the, these aspects of the fruit of the Spirit one by one. And goodness, today's topic, overlaps quite a bit with last week's, and that's kindness. And so we're, we're, we're going to look at this and just make some observations here that I, I hope to share with you that would, that would help us understand what he's getting in here. But what Paul is basically saying is he's saying all these things, these are attributes or characteristics of God here. What we see in verse 22 and verse 23, he says, this is who God is. And, and so we need to, to uh, reflect those characteristics of God in our lives. But the only way that we can do that, there's only one way that we can do that, and that is by the Holy Spirit. We have to have a relationship with Christ, and the Bible teaches us that when we're, when we're believers and followers of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit of God indwells us and then puts a desire for these things in our hearts. And so that's the first thing you have to say, do I have a desire for these things? And if there's no desire at all for these things, then you need to ask yourself, are you truly a follower of Christ? But if you have a desire for these things, but yet it's, it's just not happening the way that it should happen, then it's time to get a recalibration. Then it's time to go back to the Lord, confess that his sin, and ask him to let the Spirit of God work these things out in our lives. And, and the best way, I think, to do that is to go back and look at God's nature concerning these things. Because if we can see how God displays these things, or we can see what influences God in his, in his uh, manifestation of these aspects of the fruit of the Spirit, I think that will help us. It will help us in our quest to follow Jesus and emulate Jesus Christ and God the Father. So what I hope to do this morning is to study and to show you a little bit of what I've studied on God's goodness and the implications for our lives. Now, the implication that it's going to manifest itself is going to be in what we call good works or what the Bible calls good works. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at how does God show goodness and we're going to see what does that have an implication on our good works. Now, uh, in my notes, this is actually saved towards the end, but I'll say it right now. There's, there's this tension, okay? I'm just going to address the tension of the Christian and good works. 
Because for those of us who, who follow the Bible and we read the Bible and we study the Bible, we know that the Bible says that we are not saved by good works. Okay? We know that that is not how we have salvation. It's not by doing good. It's not by being good that then God saves us. It's not like we can continue to do enough good works and then God will save us. Ephesians chapter 2 makes it abundantly clear. It says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and it's not of yourselves. Um, it is the gift of God. Not of works. Otherwise, people can brag about it, is what it says there in verse 9. So it's very clear. Titus is also very clear in this. Throughout the whole message, it's very clear that we cannot do enough good works to save our souls or to have God be impressed enough with us to save our souls, okay? So that's clear. But as we're going to see later on in the message, we're going to see that we are commanded to do good works. So there's this tension here of how much priority should the Christian place upon good works. And the answer and the resolution to that tension is simply the order. Faith comes first, belief in Christ comes first, then good works is an outflowing of that faith, okay? But see, a lot of times we're so concerned about, about being put into the camp that teaches that you've got to do enough good works to get to, uh, to be a Christian that we downplay good works, and I believe to our detriment. So what we're going to do today is, as I said, we're going to look at these, these uh, observations, three observations about God's goodness, and then the implications that that has on our good works. So first observation, and we're going to be going different places of Scripture for this, more topical in nature today, is this. God's goodness is empowered by his sovereignty, okay? God's goodness is empowered by his sovereignty. Now, I've said this for, you know, since I've been here, that if we can get two things down about God, we can go through anything in life, and that is his goodness and his sovereignty. You have to have both, okay? Because if God was all sovereign, all powerful, but he was not good, how would he use that power, It'd be very selfish, and it would be very uh, 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 angry, and it would be be a way of uh, manipulating people and things like that, and so there wouldn't be good. And conversely, if God were all good, but yet were not sovereign, then he would want the good things to happen, but he would not have the ability to do them. So it's very important for you as you have your theological structure about God, as you worship God, as you think about God, as you, as you understand who he is, these two things are crucial. They have to go together. And since we're talking about goodness, it's important for us to be reminded that his goodness is empowered by his sovereignty. Now, how do I illustrate that? Take your Bible, go back to the book of Genesis, the very first book in the Bible, and uh, chapter 50, okay? Genesis 50. If you're using one of the Bibles provided for you, it's going to be page 44. As you're turning there, let me just give you kind of the story here, what's going on. We're talking about a person by the name of Joseph here, okay? Some of you know the story of Joseph well. Others of you, you might need the reminder. So good news, I'm here to give you the reminder this morning, okay? So here's what happened. Joseph has several brothers, okay? He has 11 brothers, and he is the second 
second to the youngest, or one of the youngest. And so here's what happens is, is that he has these dreams, and he's 17 years old, okay? He's a 17-year-old kid. He's a teenager, and he has these dreams of his brothers kind of bowing down to him, worshiping him. This is through symbolism that he has these dreams. And, and so he's telling them this, okay? You can imagine this doesn't go over well with the brothers, okay? Uh, whether or not he was bragging about it and rubbing it in, or he was just stating the fact that the Bible isn't totally clear. All I know is as a 17-year-old, I know what I would have done, okay? But hey, I can't project it upon Joseph, even though I really want to. But the, the fact of the matter is, is that there was this tension. And so like any, what any good older brothers would do in a situation like this, they would say, I'm concerned about my brother here and this dream. And so they would do what any good brothers would do, and that is sell them into slavery, okay? All right? So they sell them into slavery, okay? So he's 17 years old. He's in slavery here, and he, he's simply just telling people what God had showed him what was going to happen. So we fast forward a little bit through the story. You can read about this all in the book of Genesis. We see here for the next 13 years, Joseph goes through these interesting experiences. He's, he's moved around in, in, in um, Potiphar's house. He's falsely accused of trying to sleep with Potiphar's wife. And, and she was trying to seduce him. And he says, no, I'm not going to do this. And he runs away. She accuses him of this. He's thrown into prison for this. Even though he didn't do this, he did the right thing. He did the he acted righteously and was punished for it. And so he gets thrown into prison. Then God uses him to help people get out of prison. He's, he's given this gift of leadership. And so he tells the people, the two specific individuals who he helped to get out of prison, he says, Look, just remember me. And when you talk to Potiphar, just remember me so that I can get out of here too. And so they do what any good, you know, grateful person would do. They promptly forget about him, okay? And so they totally forget about him. And so he spends more time in prison. He's eventually uh, brought out after interpreting some dreams. And he's actually promoted. And so there's 13 years from when he was in sold into slavery, and then when he was promoted into Potiphar's house. 13 years. And so then for the next 80 years, the next 80 years, he is in charge and he's gaining rank in uh, the Egyptian nation there. But you remember, his brothers are the ones that started all this. His, His brothers are the ones that put this plan into action. If the brothers had not sold him into slavery way back when he was 17 years old, he would not have to worry about any of this. His life would have been radically different. I think it's safe to say that his life would have been radically different if his brothers would not have done that. And as fate would have it, otherwise known as God's sovereignty, as God's sovereignty would have it. His brothers, there's a famine in the land, and his brothers have to go to Egypt to get food. And guess who's in charge of the food? Joseph. I, you know, I'm a younger brother, okay? I, I have a brother who's three years older than me. And almost my entire life growing up with him was me trying to prove that I could do anything he did, Okay? I was trying to prove that I belonged. We had cousins that were my brother's age, and I was the youngest. Uh, whenever we get together, uh, they would do their thing. I remember we, they would be riding bikes. They had their two-wheel bikes, two-wheelers. I was on my tricycle, 
okay? Okay, never mind, it was, I was 12, but, uh, no, I'm teasing. I was pretty young. I, I, was, I was really young, actually, and I remember wanting to ride bicycles. We lived right next to this big parking lot, and my brothers and my, my brother and, and the cousins, they were riding their bikes over there, and I'm just with my little legs as fast as I can go on my tricycle trying to keep up. Well, you can imagine that I didn't keep up at all, and I was so frustrated. I was so angry because I wanted to be with them. I wanted to prove that I belonged with them. I remember crying. And I remember mom just saying, well, you got to learn to ride a two-wheel bike. Well, I'm like three or four at this time, okay? And that became my all-consuming goal was to ride a two-wheel bike. And guess what? I did it. Now, I was able to, at a really young age, it wasn't because I was super coordinated or anything like that. I was so driven by wanting to fit in with my brother and wanting to prove that I belonged. And and so I I was on this bike and I was riding around and my mom's like, you got this. But the one thing is, is that I didn't know how to stop, okay? And so I would ride the parking lot, and we'd go in a circle, and as I would go by the living room window, I would yell, Mom! And I would go, Mom! And my mom would have to come out and stop me, okay? Then we worked on how to stop. But it didn't matter to me. I was riding with my, bro- my brother at this time. So I was able to prove to him, hey, look, I belong with you. I'm one of you. And do you think they accepted me? No, not at all, okay, because they could ride faster. But the, the fact of the matter is that was my goal. I wanted to prove to them that, hey, I am just as good as you. Now, Joseph here has this perfect opportunity to show his brothers and kind of rub it in his face and their faces of what they did to him. But some of you know the story. He forgives them. He weeps. And there's restoration there. The family comes and joins them. It literally saves the family because the family was so severe. Well, here's what happens, though. Joseph's dad is still alive at this point. And the other brothers knew that Joseph honored their dad. And the day came, even after the reconciliation, when the dad dies, the older brothers get scared. They're scared that Joseph is now going to take his revenge. They're scared that Joseph has just simply waited this all this time. They've waited, you know, about 80 years or so to get their revenge. You talk about a guilty conscience that they think after all those years that Joseph is going to finally enact his revenge. Look what happens here. Picking up the story in, uh, in Genesis 15, verse 15. It says this, now when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. I got to stop there. That is one of the most hilarious things I have read in scripture here. Okay, they're so scared. They make up a message from their dad who is dead now, okay? We have no record that, <laughs> that he actually said this. How many siblings have done that? Mom said to do this because they're just trying to get their own way. This is exactly what's happening here. He's saying, 
Well, dad said, dad said to forgive us because it evils you. So I, hey, look, we're, we're just the messenger. You know, we think that you probably should get some revenge on us, but hey, dad said not to, so hey, we got to honor dad, okay? So this is kind of what's going on here. Now, please forgive the transgressions of the servant of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Why do you think Joseph wept? Don't you think it was like a gut punch to him where he thought, wait a minute, you're still, you're still worried about this? After all these years, you're, you're still concerned about this? I thought we cleared this up a long time ago. I thought you knew that everything was okay. I thought you knew that forgiveness had taken place. So he weeps. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. What is he talking about there? He's talking about the famine. He's saying, if, if you, yeah, you meant it for evil, and it was wrong for you to do it, but God was sovereignly working his plan. He was sovereignly doing his good work to place me in a place where then I could be in a place to, to save people, lots of people from the famine, including the entire family of Joseph's brother. Does anyone know? One of Joseph's brother, his name was Judah. Does anyone know who comes from the line of Judah? Exactly, Jesus. And so this was a, a God-ordained plan to save people throughout the famine and to actually give them the to protection of the godly line or the, the messianic line, rather, of Judah. And Joseph understood that God, you guys meant this for evil, but God meant it for good. And so God's goodness was, was, was uh, empowered by his sovereignty, okay? So he says, look, here, here's the thing is, I'm going to do a good plan, and I'm going to sovereignly work all this out. So what's the implication for us in our good works? Well, the implication for us in our good works is this, is that our good works must be empowered by the big plan, not the immediate circumstance, so as we're considering how to live our lives and the decisions that we make on a daily basis here, we need to always have the big picture in mind, and that is, how do we glorify God? Not what is best or the easiest in this circumstance, or, or what is the best way for me to get whatever I need out of this? Because a lot of times, that's the temptation for our good works. It's, it's not so much about what other people, how they can benefit from it, but it's how we can benefit from it. And so I believe the implication here, when we see in Galatians chapter 5, that the aspect of the fruit of the Spirit is that it's goodness. And that means, because we're going to reflect the nature of God through this, is that we have to always have the big picture in mind when we make our decisions on how to live our lives. I mean, what is God's big picture for us? That we honor him, that we bring him glory, that everything we say and do gives glory to God, and that we exalt God in his name to people around us. And so that, the big picture that has to govern. So instead of me doing something out of a sense of duty or obligation to help someone out, all of a sudden I realize, wait a minute here, 
This is an opportunity for me to glorify God's name. This is an opportunity to, to, to volunteer in this way or to, to, to hold my tongue when I really want to speak or to speak when I really don't want to or, or to pray or, or whatever the case may be, whatever the good works that we're talking about are. If we have the big picture in mind of God and his name and his glory, that's going to do a couple things. One, it's going to open our eyes to opportunities to serve and to do good works. And two, it's going to make sure and ensure that our motives are pure in doing those good works. And so the implication of our good works would be empowered, must be empowered by the big plan, not the immediate circumstance. Let me give you another observation, and that is this. God's goodness is not limited by our sense of fairness. Go to Matthew chapter 20, please. Matthew chapter 20. This is page 825 if you're using one of the Bibles provided for you there. God's goodness, second observation, is not limited by our sense of fairness. Okay? So we're saying that God is good. We're looking at what does this mean that God is good. If we're going to reflect this, what does that mean? Okay? What does it mean that God is good? There's a great story here in Matthew 20. I'm going to read it. Verse 1. Matthew 20, verse 1. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right I will give you. So they went. Going out again, about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? And he said that they said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, these last worked only one hour, but you have made them equal to us. Who have borne the burden of the day in the scorching heat? But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I chose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first last. Now, the word there translated generosity there is actually the same word goodness in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22. In fact, that specific word in that construction of that word is only used four times in all of the New Testament, and only Paul uses it. In fact, if you read some linguistics uh, experts on that word, it's actually kind of a little difficult for him because Paul is the only one that uses it. 
It's a, it's a different construct there. But the idea is, and everyone kind of understands that there's the idea of generosity associated with it, or it's a practical outworking of kindness, is what he just talked about, uh, Paul in Galatians chapter 5. And so, so here, when we see this story of this, this, the master of the house hiring different people to work in his field, and then he was very generous towards the last person. Now, we can, we can make a lot of application from that story, um, that, that God is, he gives as he sees fit. Um, his generosity, we have no right to, to talk about. I mean, you think about it on contrast with uh, maybe the disciples who were following Christ, and they were going through difficult things and persecutions and things like that. Maybe it was Paul, Think about how the difficult life he had in following Christ and how he was shipwrecked and he was beaten. At one point, he was beaten so severely, they actually thought he was dead. And, and they leave and they, they threw his body outside. And they, they thought he was dead. He was beaten so bad. And he wasn't. He, he, his health restored and he went on to serve God. So you have that contrasted with the thief on the cross. He lived a life of however he wanted to live it, and he did what he wanted to do. And, and then in the last hour, at the 11th hour, he says, wait a minute here, I, I deserve to die here. This man doesn't. He says, remember me. And, and Jesus says, surely you're going to be with me in paradise. So I'm forgiving your sins. You're believing in me. I'm forgiving your sins. My righteousness, what I'm doing right here, is going to be on you. It's going to pay for the sins that are nailing you to this tree. He says, you're with me. I mean, you imagine the, the sense of fairness there. You know, God, and he's going to save this person the last hour if they lived their whole life. It doesn't seem very fair. And it's true. It's not fair in turn, how we understand it. You see, we understand equity. We understand that, well, I've worked so hard for God's blessings, and so you have to work just as hard as I do. Wait a minute. Who's in control of God's blessings here? You see, God's generosity here, God's, God's goodness is not limited by our sense of fairness. And so I think a lot of times the implication here then is that our good works then must not be uh, limited by our sense of fairness, but it should be instead marked by generosity. And so as we do things, a lot of times when we have the opportunity to do good to other people, there's a sense of fairness that comes in. It's like, well, did they work hard enough? Or did they show enough effort on their part? I don't want to enable. Or, or the case maybe we think of, of, well, I don't know if they're deserving of this. And over time, we said, instead of God's goodness, instead of God's generosity governing our good works and our manifestation of that, our sense of fairness then becomes the governor of how we decide to treat other people. And, and you, let me just say, you, you and I, we do not want God to simply treat us fairly. <laughs> we don't. We don't. Our sin has separated us from God. Every person here, there's no exceptions here. Uh, my sin has separated me from God, okay? Okay, I, I know my heart. I, I know my sins, okay? I, I know what I've done. I know what I've thought. I know what I've said. I know, I know my sinful heart, okay? And, and, so, and I don't even know the depths of it according to the Scripture, but I know enough. And what I do know is that that has put me as an enemy of God because I was born with a sin nature. Every person here is in the same condition as me, okay? And so if God were going to treat me justly, if God were going to treat me 
unfairly, then I understand that, that he created us for holiness. And once we don't have that, then there's a punishment associated with that. And that's what I deserve, okay? I, I, I believe this, okay? I, I, I wonder, I just wonder if, if, if we really truly believe this, though, because if God, if God were to, to, to say to you, you know, you look, you, uh, you deserve for me to throw you into hell. I, I wonder how many of you would, how many of us would actually agree with him on that, that that's what we deserve, Okay? I think a lot of times we would start going back to maybe some of these other good things that we've done. And, and, and no, fairness, justness of God would say that, that he would deal with us according to our sins. But God's goodness, God's goodness is not limited by our sense of fairness. I mean, he came down and he, when he knew that we were sinners, when we were weak, he saved us. When we could not save ourselves, when there was nothing that we could do, he, he, Jesus intervened and he lived a life of perfect righteousness so that we could have eternal life and so that we could serve God. And so God's goodness is not limited by our sense of fairness. And so therefore, our good works, our good works should be marked not by a sense of fairness, but by generosity, just like this person here, who he had riches apparently. He had things that were given to him. And so he's saying, can I not do with it what I want to do with it? And obviously here, you know, the, the, the master of the house, symbolic of God the Father, and God is super, extraordinarily generous towards you and to me. And so as I seek to reflect that goodness, then it has to be marked by generosity. Not a sense of, well, okay, if you do this, then I will be good to you. Or I will serve you in this way. In fact, honestly, God has called us to sacrificially serve each other even if it's not about a sense of whether or not someone deserves it. We're called to be patient. We're called to be kind. We're called to be forgiving. We're called to bear with one another. We're called to do all these things. Why? Because I believe it's a reflection of God's goodness, his generosity. And so we see that God's goodness is not limited by our sense of fairness. And so therefore, our good works must be marked by generosity. Now, I told you there were three observations. The first one, was that God's goodness is empowered by his sovereignty. So therefore, the implication is that our good works must be empowered by the big plan, not by immediate circumstances. The second observation, and we could have many more, but just for the sake of time today, the second observation was that God's goodness is not limited by our sense of fairness. Therefore, our good works must be marked by generosity. And the last observation is this, God's goodness is intended to lead us to him. God's goodness is intended to lead us to him. Go over to Titus chapter 3, please. Titus 3. This is page, uh, we're going to start in um, uh, 998. Okay, Titus 3. God's goodness is intended to lead us to him. Okay? Titus 3. Page 998 if you use one of the Bibles there. Says this in verse um, three. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. 
Other than that, we were pretty good, okay? <laughs> All right? You see that, that description there? I mean, pretty bad description there. But look at verse 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. But when the goodness of our Savior appeared, he saved us. And so God's goodness is designed, it's intended to lead us to him. And so the, the blessings that we see of God in our lives and the, and the goodness that God shows us, the generosity that he shows to you, the purpose of it is to point you to him. It's not to have a life of ease. It's not to have a, a better life. It's not to, to have a, an easy life. No, 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 no. The purpose is so that we go to God. And so that we see him. Remember Romans 2, 4? I've, I've quoted the last couple of weeks here is that how that the, the, the kindness of God is meant to lead us to repentance. Okay? And so if God is being kind to you, and he is, he's being kind to you. I mean, think about it. I know maybe you have health issues. Maybe you have financial issues. Maybe you have personality conflicts, whatever it is. Even in all those things, God is still being really good to you. Okay? That's meant to lead your soul to him. And so for some of you, that may mean today that you repent of your sins for the very first time and ask God to save you from your sins. And for others of you, that means a recalibration of saying, hey, I have been living my life according to my own goals, to my own expectations, and to my own desires, and to my own wants. And God's goodness to me, he's been abundantly kind to me, I see that it, I'm supposed to follow him. I'm supposed to let him govern all these things. So God's goodness is intended to lead us to him. And so the implication then is that our good works point to the meaning and purpose of our lives. Okay? So what we do, if, if we're allowing God's goodness to govern us, then our good works will point to the meaning and purpose of our lives. Now, how do I, what do I mean by that? Well, I have a few verses I put on the screen for you. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10. Look at this. It says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We were created for good works. Okay, remember I told you the tension, okay? You know, we're, we're so afraid of, of preaching or, or believing a, a message of salvation by good works that sometimes we downplay good works too much. And, and, and I agree that we should not believe a message that says good works bring salvation. There's only one good work that brings salvation. That was the work Jesus did, okay? And so once we have that, but understand that he saved us then for good works, Okay? So, so that our lives should be marked by this. This is the meaning and purpose of our lives. And you say, now, wait a minute here. Now, the danger of that is that then you're going to build a reputation for yourself. And I don't understand that. Well, then this is where Matthew chapter 5 comes in. In verse 16, it says this. In the same way, let your light shine before others so they may see your good works. And then do what? Give glory to your Father who is in heaven. You see, there's, the, there's where we need to be. Is once people start saying, man, you're doing good things, you say, well, here's the reason why. 
God's been very good to me. He's been very generous to me. And I want to reflect that nature of God. And I want people to see how good God is. And so I'm ordering my life to mimic how he's being generous and kind. Do you see how that works? How it's immediate glory to God. And that's why we give a life devoted to good works. Titus chapter 3 again, verse 8. You're already there. I put it on the screen, but it says this. This saying is trustworthy. I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. So if I were to put a survey out and say, how many of you believe in God? Okay, all right. And every person who would raise their hand or check that box, then you would need to say, then I need to be careful to do something and I need to devote myself to good works because that's what Titus 3 verse 8 says. Because here's the beauty of it. The tension is relieved when we understand that we're doing this and we're living a life to reflect God and to show God's nature and to bring glory to him. We're not doing good works so that people think we're special. We're not doing good works to to gain a reputation for ourselves. We're actually doing this so that people see God's glory on display. So it gives meaning and purpose to our lives. So no longer is your purpose in life your job or your recreation, or your hobby, or, or your relationship and your responsibility as a parent, or a spouse, or, or an employee, or employer. No longer is your identity tied to that. No longer is your purpose and meaning in life those things. No, no, no. Your purpose in life, the reason why you're drawing breath this second, is to give glory to God Almighty. That's why you're here. That's why I'm here. And so this is what I pray. I pray that as we look at the goodness of God, we see how generous he is. We see how kind he is. We see how awesome he is. And we say, look, i got to reflect that. And I'm going to live that life because this is an aspect of the fruit of the Spirit of goodness. And God's Spirit has to bring this out and give me good motives. And so I'm going to give a life devoted to good works so that people would see God. That's what he's calling us to. That's his desire. Verse 14 of the same chapter in Titus, it says this, And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works. Let them learn to devote themselves to good works. So let me conclude with this. Let me just ask you, do you believe that God is good? If so, we are to reflect his goodness by living a life of good works. And man, I'm telling you, even as I say this, I know when you hear me say that, some of you, that causes a little tension. Even as I say it, because I've grown up in such a culture that it was like, well, don't say be devoted to good works because, you know, that's going to give people the wrong idea. But I'm telling you what the scriptures say, and the scriptures say that we do that so that people see God. So are, are we devoted to this? Is this ordering our lives? Now, how do we do that? Well, I think... It's through all those one another's in Scripture. There's several one another's in Scriptures. In fact, um, there's about 47 times in the New Testament where there's a command that says, do this to one another, whatever it is. I, I've got a bunch that I'm just going to just show you a couple of them here. We're not even going to go through all the ones that I have on this, that I've planned. But just so you get the idea, Mark, 50, uh, Mark 9, verse 50, it says, be at peace with one another. Be at peace with one another. That's a good work. John chapter 13 says, love one another. Do you love one another? Romans 15 says, welcome one another. Have a hospitable spirit towards each other. Be willing to meet each other's basic needs. Being kind to each other. 
Through love, serve one another, Galatians 5 says. And I could go on and on. There's so many more. And, 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 and due to time, I'm not going to go through the rest of the slides, David. But uh, if you want to know what these 47 one another commands are, I'd be happy to give them to you. But here's the point. is You do a study in that through the scriptures, and you'll find that this is how we devote ourselves to good works. By serving one another, by loving one another, by, being, by, by embracing one another, by being patient with one another, by being forgiving towards each other. This is what God's called us to do. Okay? And the reason why you should do this, and the reason why I need to do this, is because God is good. And I need to reflect that. And so do you. Our time is gone. Let's pray. Father, we've taken time today to really look through this idea of goodness. And so I pray that we would reflect your nature in this way. And I'm grateful that you are a good, good God. May I reflect that with my life this week. And I pray this for my friends in the room today, that they would make this a conscious effort this week to reflect your nature in this way. In Christ's name we do pray. Amen.